0: my buttercups, welcome back to another episode of Topic Discuss. Um, I've had some requests to go back to the Xi Jinping uh, video and I'll put a link up here. I, I think I'll put a link up there when I get a chance to. So you can go back and watch that. We really were just talking about 2022 Olympics. I mentioned some things about the geopolitical consequences of uh, of that work that Xi Jinping was uh, was trying to accomplish, and whether he whether we think that he accomplished what he was setting out to do geopolitically. Um, a lot has changed that we're going to have to add into that discussion, including the Ukrainian war, and we need to talk about a what the world looks like uh, post pandemic. I would I would suggest, or I think that I'm um predicting if you will that uh the 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 old world order or the way that the economic world globally worked uh has really been completely disheveled and is pretty much over and so with that hypothesis we're going to talk about what the new world order will look like what the future will look like and i am going to also hypothesizer my thesis includes that the future will be completely geopolitically centered on space when i say space i'm talking about from the earth to the moon to the asteroid belt so buckle up buttercups it's another episode of topic discuss the centrality of space, and um, as usual, I just want to um, invite all of you to participate in um, the Buttercups program. You can join um, uh, topic discuss as a member. It just kind of helps keep things moving along and and kind of, I think is motivating. When people are joining, it, it, it is a little bit motivating to continue to make content. So anyway, I I'd love it if you would join. There are three different levels you can join, um, and uh, they will give you different perks. They'll also give you different names. Like you can be butters, or you can be cups, or you can be a full fledged buttercup. Um, don't also don't forget to subscribe. Um, I have had a few people ask me, you know, why is it that I can't. I I need to know when your new content is coming out. And it it really that that happens because you haven't clicked the subscribe button. So you need to do that. And um, I also appreciate any likes that you um, that you uh, click on because that also helps with my algorithm. And then what I've been learning really helps with the algorithm is if you share it to Facebook, if you have a Facebook. Um, So with that said. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. Um, I had made a video, and I'll I'll try to either I did it in the intro, or I'll put it here. A, a link out to my Winter Two Thousand Two Olympics um, uh, broadcast, where we really talked about the geopolitical consequences. What what Xi Jinping Xi Jinping was trying to do, um, similar to what Hitler's done in other countries, really. But but specifically what authoritarian leaders attempt to do and we're going to talk about this through the uh through the rest of the the show tonight um is that they want to um essentially find ways to maintain their power and remain in control Xi Jinping is up for a i'm going to blank on the name of this in the fall of 22 there is even though there's not really uh, elections. There still are rings of uh, or, or or circles of power below Xi Jinping in in the Chinese Communist Party. It is a one party government, so it's very authoritarian. Um, but but some of those inner rings um, can de... if they don't like Xi Jinping, Xi, Xi, Xi Jinping uh, then they uh, they can actually uh, de how, you know, dethrone him, if you will, and put in a a different uh, premier or president. So I had just mentioned um, in my last video that maybe we would see whatever happens with the Olympics is going to have a big determination on how these lower councils or these lower governing structures will view Xi Jinping. So let's get into maybe how um, that looked for him. So um, in our our slide presentation, (laughs) if you wanna watch, uh, if you're not watching, then I'll talk through each slide, so you don't actually have to watch if you're listening to this uh, over the podcast. If you're watching live, this is, um, you'll see our slide deck here. But, um, so you can see that the Winter Olympics, uh was um successful um in, in terms of li- like the venue and and all those all those kinds of things however um whether Xi Jinping liked this or not it was the olympics has been completely overshadowed by covid so just a little bit of background and history there um china has had a very challenging um resurgence of COVID because of their vaccination strategy. So they did not participate with the rest of the world on a, a vaccine strategy. They did not participate with Moderna or Pfizer. They created um, their own, their own uh, vaccine, which is true to form for an authoritarian government. And so uh, it, it didn't work. It, it, it wasn't a broad enough, um, to, to deal with the fact that you would see additional mutations and that those additional mutations would also need um, to be dealt with, with it within the vaccine. So it, it just wasn't, it wasn't broad enough. And so none of, so the vaccination, even though they may have had a high vaccination rate um, in their populated populated cities, they still had uh, relatively low uh, compliance in their rural areas, and they also didn't have really any protection against the delta and other variants, and so that has really left uh, China in probably one of the worst places uh, in the world in terms of not—I mean, amongst the worst in terms of this pandemic. So, so in contrast to the United States, despite. Uh, I think sometimes what happens when you live in the United States, like myself and friends and family around me, is is you do get pretty myopic. You hear about all the challenges we're facing within the United States, including low vaccination rates by our standards. However, globally, the United States has a a relatively high uh, vaccination rate, even with boosters, um, uh, especially when compared to countries like Russia and China. So this has left China um, in very, very bad shape um, related to uh, the pandemic. So they have, as a result, a implemented, and we're actually moving into the fifth week of their uh, most strictest and severe lockdowns. So um, the the Chinese vice premier, Sun Chen lan, Chen lan implemented a policy forcing everyone to test positive for COVID um, without exception or delay or deduction to be moved into a um, uh, like a like a uh, it's like a um, decontamination camp. What is it called? Oh, it, it's uh, they're isolated while some while a crew of of cleaners come in and clean their their space and and um, and and there's no like you can't. It's totally authoritarian. So you can't choose whether you're going to go um, to this. Uh, uh, this uh, uh, This location that that isolates you or quarantines you they're they're I forget what they're calling them in China, but you're quarantined in a different location Someone comes in and cleans your space your house your apartment or whatever And then I don't know how quickly you can go back, um, but you're quarantined, but you're forced to quarantine in, in one of these locations Just taking a drink of my coke zero here so <clears throat> that has created some interesting dynamics with the Chinese economy, uh, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, But I think the pandemic, um, because of that and the Ukrainian war, we have seen um, some significant changes or impacts economically. So the the major problem with authoritarian regimes or authoritarian governments um, is that um, the the way that they will respond geopolitically is 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 typically um self-defeating and self-destructive so the way that china's responded to the war and um economic downturn um has always has a common root and this is true for most authoritarian countries or, or governments so there's always there always has to be a public display of yellow slag or yellow swag like uh we are doing great and we you should have fomo because you're not us Um, but that's not really what's happening Um, there's an obsession internally to control control narratives control um, environments control minds and people and then obviously there's usually chronically dubious results and outcomes in, in authoritarian regimes and that's what we're seeing in China. So just kind of uh, to give a little bit of history, because I think that some of my viewers or some of my uh, my fans and buttercups uh, have uh, a deep-rooted re- fear in China. And I, I want to do a little myth-busting for those who have this fear of China taking over the world and, um, and, and, and where that came from. So there, in, in, uh, in... Well, so... We saw China really reform its economic policies in the 1978, and this was this was due to the death of Mao Zedong. And that's again what we see in authoritarian governments: is that there is a, a one leader that you that people continue to kind of either worship or or keep in power. That that leader also keeps themselves in power, by through propaganda, and making making their people think that they're doing great things. But usually, what happens when it takes death first of all to remove authoritarian uh, leaders, so they stay in power for a long time. When that happened with China in 1978, there was there was new leadership, which I, I won't spend time on, just because it that's a whole other podcast. Um, but but that resulted in economic reform um, in in China, specifically around um, uh, growth strategies um, internally. Manufacturing and industrialization, um, which which really was profound um, for China, um, and it, it allowed them to grow um, very quickly in terms of their economic growth and GDP. Uh, their population was also booming, and so China has always kind of been this sleeping dragon economically and geopolitically. And so, one of the things that happened po- post World War II, and really through the Cold War, Cold War is the United States became uh, the the uh, economic engine, uh, if you will, of, of the world. This new global order really meant that if you want to participate in the global economy, then you need to follow the United States rules. Um, and when you do that, then the United States will protect you militarily. right? So we saw throughout um, Southeast Asia, uh, continued military forces building up um along those sea tr- sea trade routes um, i can remember one of the first times i went to singapore i saw two united states aircraft carriers parked outside <laughs> the island and i and i thought what what this is, it was really odd for me to see just because look such look like such a big military display and 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 by the way aircraft carriers are kind of like the star destroyers of our of our planet um, no, no other country has the, the the amount that we do. No other country has uh, these uh, aircraft carriers, or uh, in in all locations of the earth that we can deploy immediately. So there's a significant force, and a lot of this is true, and has happened because of this kind of global agreement that that happened throughout uh, the Cold War to say, okay, yeah, we want to participate in the global order economically, so we're going to. We're going to rely on or even pay the united states to manage our defenses so we don't have to spend money on defense we can we can spend money on infrastructure and industrialization and be and and really and wait raise the living wage and 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 our gdp as a country i'm taking another drink so what's interesting and we're live so i don't edit out my my coke zero drinking but um what So so when when we think about that happening and that kind of like lays the groundwork or the background for why we see the United States with the military position that it has uh, and where that came from. um, And and China really benefited from from that, um, especially post 1978. And but it wasn't really until the World Trade Organization under the leadership of Bill Clinton, you can see here a picture of him that we saw China, um, China, the opportunity for China to really explode economically. Now, that was intentional on the part of the United States. It was it was intentional on um, intentional by this first world order or first world countries, which we're going to talk about in a minute what those mean. Because there's a rec- there was a recognition that um, China was emerging, uh, an emerging economy and an emerging country that could really be beneficial. China wanted to participate in this in this global, um, global economy. And so there was a there was a mutual agreement to uh, to make them part of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which even propelled their economy forward even faster, their GDP, uh, especially the problem, though um is that and 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 by the way so that happened i think uh i don't know in the 90s um and well it was with bill clinton sort of in the 90s and um and i can remember as a young as a young person who was very apolitical i didn't really care about politics i would hear family members and friends just freaking out about china China's going to take over, look at their GDP. it's and it was. It was really growing. their their economic growth was you know seven, eight, nine percent per year. So they did and it just kept going. and and so the the predictions, if you if you if you did some statistically, you know uh, predictive models, you would see that they would take over the United States GDP, which was concerning to people. Um, but the the problem that actually occurred. So reality is, once we hit two thousand and ten, so we saw this continued growth, but but there there were still internal authoritarian problems, and and you're going to hear me really ha- hammer on authoritarianism and authoritarian governments, because I think gone are the days where we're talking about capitalism versus, um, in, you know, versus communism. Think that again. I think those are world order ideas that come post World War II, that end Cold War era, that are now dead and gone. We're really talking about authoritarian uh, regimes and authoritarian governments um, versus liberal democracies, and um, and I'll get into that in a minute. So, um, so so these external forces really propelled China forward, and and internal leadership took advantage of that, and they didn't really think beyond what um what would what what would be required to continue that kind of growth there was just because it was going it was lasting so long year after year uh the chinese were experiencing this incredible growth Uh, the the era from 1978 to 2010 actually saw the greatest number of chinese people lifted out of out of poverty which, which was just significant right and so yet these authoritarian regimes that continue to remain in place um that 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 wanted to dabble in capitalism and liberal democracy liberal democracy really includes um the uh the the government uh being uh liberal with its intellectual property so in the united states for example um when i talk about liberal democracy in the united states for example if the united states is is, Investing in the Department of Defense for innovation, research and development, the new IP that comes out of those efforts can be um, privatized and sent out into the private sector. To and the private sector can can then really accelerate what happens to that IP. Um, NASA is a good, good example of that. When the Obama administration, I mean, not NASA is not really a great example because that's not necessarily IP, but all the infrastructure of space under the Obama administration um, that was moved over to the private sector. And that's going to lead us to further discussion on the centrality of space later in this podcast. But um, China couldn't quite get the, the Chinese regimes, these authoritarian regimes, couldn't quite allow that kind of thing to happen because they, they wanted to maintain this governmental control through whatever means they they they, they could. right? either by um really by just making the state and a single leader uh um kind of the the religion if you will and and the person that you worship or the party that you worship and so um that never was resolved even though, so and i think part of the reason for that and i'm totally oversimplifying is that the authoritarian leaders through these decades um reap the benefits of the new world order or of the of the current of the world order uh economic order and um just didn't could not recognize and this is true for authoritarianism it's di- it's difficult to recognize that that your um prosperity is not going to last and when it starts to fade what authoritarian regimes typically do is they look behind Um, At at the past to try to get back to how things used to be. They don't know how to look forward and prepare for a different world Um, and that really happened with China because um, Even though they had this this really great growth Some of the policies they had internally were working. They still maintained authoritarian control over their banking system specifically some of their heavy industrial um, um, uh, sectors energy and, and intellectual property. And one of the things that I've heard people say, well, is that, well, China will also steal the intellectual property of these private businesses that, that crop pop up. And that, that might be, that that's true. They don't have the same kind of intellectual property protections the United States has, but what I don't think people realize is what's, what's more devastating to China is the fact that they not only do they not have protective laws for innovation in the private sector but it's they don't have a big private sector so it it, that's not what really is impactful what's what's the most impactful is that any ip that comes out of china's own governmental expense uh, investments Banking investments into the banking industry, the energy industry is a good example. So, if the Chinese government that really owns all energy production, no private enterprise is involved, then any new invention or R and D that comes out of the energy sector will be um, will be held uh, kind of hoarded by the Chinese government. So that elect intellectual property never gets to the private sector. That's what's actually a, 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 a deal killer killer for China, they didn't recognize that, um, that that would be hurtful. So, so what happened in 2010 is the economy, this great growth that they were having of 9% or higher, uh, just, just stalled and continued to, to, to stall even today. So 2010 was really. Uh. And and part of that is also because um, they really didn't have a way of managing the recession and and moving beyond the recession. The recession kind of level set that kind of growth, the Great Recession of 2008, which we'll talk about a little bit later, too. But I just I want to highlight for all of those out there who are fearful of Chinese, the China that are kind of these late Gen Z's or or Gen Xers and uh, uh, early millennials who kind of grew up on the tail end. I mean, I didn't really grow up in the Cold War. I remember when the Berlin Wall, Wall fell. I was very young, but I, I remember that being on the news. I didn't, I, I didn't really know what that meant. I just was told it's the fall of communism. But that, that era of, of people who are in the audience, um, I, I want to just give you some facts so that you can reset your thoughts about China. China's not in a position to um, be a global power in the future at all. Uh, There have been major errors, and authoritarianism is is really the cause of those errors. So we'll move on. Uh, So China's challenge, uh, and and I just put a map up here to talk about um, the way that that the World Bank um, and different uh, global institutions look at the economics of, of different countries around the world. So China's economic uh, growth continues to decline. The pandemic it has, so remember 2010, it starts to, to slow. They continue to maintain authoritarianism in in terms of state owned energy, all energy is state owned, all banks are state owned, IP is all state owned. And, um, so then the pandemic hits and I, I think just further puts the nail in the coffin for China, and then the Ukrainian war. Part of that is if you look at the map, you'll see that China's biggest land partner, like the land that they touch, that that provides them re- important energy imports and exports, really energy exports is Russia. So um, the Russian-Ukrainian war and all the sanctions that occurred due to that have are, are really hurting China in terms of energy. So. Um, China's growth is targeted this year at 5% and that that's the lowest um, GDP growth, which is still growth, it's its not a declination of growth, um, and and these are numbers that don't come out of China, this comes out of, um, you know, deductions, because we don't get really good information out of China, so when I say 5% growth, I'm talking about economists that are in the Western world that, that, that really kind of look at other indicators, so it could be lower than that. Um, but the world, because of that, the World Bank classifies China as middle to income level, um, even though they have the second largest economy in the world. they They still are in that light green upper middle income um, like uh, Russia, like Brazil, many of the countries in South America. Um, which is really interesting if you think about it. again, if you if you still have this fearful mindset that that China is a superpower, China is going to overtake the United States economically. And yet you see that China is still classified, despite its growth and the size as upper middle income rather than high income. So it is still not in the same category as Europe, um, Saudi Arabia, and the um, United States, Canada, etc. So authoritarian governance has resulted in IP to remain controlled um, by the state and um, we'll move on from that whole concept. But I just want to hopefully myth bust some of these ideas that have come from the past related to China. So I I want to take just a second that previous slide. We talked about these these income levels of countries. I, I used to think that that is how you described a first world country, a second world country, and a third world country. I've learned, however, that, um, that that's, that those, the three world model came out of world war II and really, um, related to the winners of the war. And so the winners were, are considered the first world. So the United States and its allies, which you can see on this map is Australia and Europe and Japan. Um, and, and Israel, kind of there in the Middle East. And then the second world uh, are all the countries that were that lost the, the, uh, the axis. And that doesn't mean necessarily that they are in worse economic condition or better, uh, or, or even the same economic condition. It's just how the, the new world order that occurred post-World War II resulted in this new nomenclature of first, second, and third world. Third world order were countries that really weren't involved or remained neutral. So the first world and the second world, those two, the, the first world countries and second world countries remain locked in um, a Cold War, post World War Two uh, until the 90s. So you're going, so I'm I'm hypothesizing or, or in my thesis, you'll you'll see that I, I'm suggesting uh, that uh, these world orders and these descriptions of first world, second world, third world countries is is really over, and we'll talk about why in a minute. So the other thing that's happened is the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I want to talk about Ukraine. I'm not I'm not going to say that I can I'm not going to I can't predict what what's going to happen post uh, the war in Ukraine about who who will win or not. But what I will talk about is Russia. Um, and Russia's, what Russia's going to look like um, in this in the new world going forward. So uh, so USSR, you know, through the post-World War II and, and Cold War era, you know, um, and I don't have time in this podcast to really talk about what happened in, in, the, in the Soviet Union during those years, um, but um, there, there were, but but part of it, it's the same. It's similar to China. There were there was a um, an ongoing, very long um, tradition of authoritarian rule. Um, so again, I you know you you could say, well, it's communism that's that that really is what. And for for communism is what we used to label Russia or Soviet Union and China during these years. And again, you can see that in the previous slide, they were considered second world countries because they, they align themselves with, with communism. But I, I think for modern, for modern nomenclatures, it's important to discard that, uh, that old notion, it doesn't really exist anymore. What, what's more important to get our minds around that does exist is authoritarianism. So an authoritarian regime is really what we continue to see with, with one leader uh, in the Soviet Union for a very long time. It takes someone to die to change your leadership um. So either that happens through natural causes, or someone you know knocks them off and kills them. So that that's that's authoritarianism. There are other things that I'll 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 state later about what authoritarianism is. But that again, same same issues that we saw with 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 China is that the Soviet Union just could not, may could not grow into the um, end of the twentieth century and into the new twenty first century. Because of um, their authoritarian policies, so um, the first real blow. So, so the Soviet Union starts to crumble. Um, there are countries within the Soviet Union, Belarus and Ukraine, that start to want to secede from the Soviet Union and and vote to remove themselves. And in um, uh, the 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 biggest the biggest blow to the fall of the Soviet Union was when the when ukraine voted 91 uh popular referendum to secede from the soviet union Um, so the secession of ukraine was a massive blow to russia because uh, economically ukraine was the second largest economic engine for the soviet union throughout the cold war which left russia and i remember this happening thinking oh you know, hooray, Russia's communisms fell, and, and now Russia's um, so naive of me to think this way. And naive for anyone else who thinks this way too, because, you know, yet, yes, communism fell, but authoritarianism didn't disappear or die off. Um, and Russia really was left in um, a state of disheveled um, corruption. Because they didn't have the economic engine that they used to have in in, in Ukraine. They still had a good economic engine, but but man, splitting off Ukraine and Ukraine becoming its own country was devastating for the Russian Federation. But this left uh, a power vacuum in Russia um, post uh, post the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of uh, of the regime. Of the Soviet Union. So, oligarch families that had benefited from from authoritarian economic policies started to fill in those gaps. And the Russian Orthodox uh, Church um, also started to fill in those gaps, which resulted in social, economic, and ethnic instability. One of the things that's strange about this to me is the Russian Orthodox Christian Church. and religions also have a a problem with the authoritarianism because in this one, in this way specifically, religions have a difficult time. Major world religions almost never uh, are capable of looking into the future um, to prepare for a a new economic world order because for many of them the, the future is the end of the world. They, that that's kind of the religious motif. Re- so religions um, have an authoritarian streak in that they will look back to a time when things were prosperous for them and that's what they want to go back to, right? And so that's true for the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, they have a, a still today a big beef with the Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church that uh, goes, goes all the way back to um, you know the the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries of uh, AD um, and also uh, from World War II because um, the Roman Catholic Church allied with Hitler um, and and really supported, uh, and Italy, uh, obviously with Mussolini supported um, the the axis. So so Nazism um, was very intertwined with with the Catholic Church. So all this uh, this power vacuum um, leaves different types of authoritarianism. Uh, to to creep into to Russia, to the Russian Federation. there what A democracy really didn't develop, even though that's what I believed, because I saw Russia change its flag to red, white and blue. And I'm like, yes, they're going to be like capitalism is going to save or Russia's, you know. Uh, and as a Mormon, I thought the, the gospel is going to be preached um, and, and spread through Russia. And that, that was all really just naive um, power vacuum. Uh, left gaps that authoritarian regimes filled from oligarch families to the Russian Orthodox Church. So um, the Russian Federation did remain in economic um, turmoil um, until, uh, uh, until 1999 when Yeltsin appointed Putin as his successor. So, so Putin ha- was a, a KBG agent, and leader, not leader, but he, but he lived during the um, kind of the 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 heyday or the the prime time of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union was considered powerful and strong globally had a strong nuclear arsenal right and so from the fall of the uh, fr- from the fall of Soviet Union in in ninety in the early nineties nineteen ninety one, the, the fall of the Soviet Union really started in eighty nine and, and finalized in ninety or ninety one. So, uh, almost an entire decade of of uh, in economic instability occurred in Russia, which is almost impossible to recover from. Not just ru- not just economic instability. But political instability. So even though there was kind of supposedly a constitution, it didn't really take. You know, didn't really um, protect an economic structure that would help propel Russia forward. So during that time, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, Russia did not invest in its people edu- from an education perspective, and so. Um, there really was a a loss of a, of a full generation of really highly educated and skilled uh, workers. You also have um, a, a lack of investment in their militaries. I know there's fear right now about the nuclear capabilities of Russia, which is a serious issue. But the rockets that need to be maintained and continuously invested in to launch these warheads are not uh, were were not maintained. For, for 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 over a decade and so um and still many of them are not. so I think part of the fear that that uh, that Russia has about using their nuclear arsenal, even even some tactical nukes is that they may you know maybe they'll explode the, on, on Russia accidentally because they just haven't kept the infrastructure up necessary to make those things viable so um, Putin um, Uh, becomes the supreme leader in the year 2000. So just think about that as you think about authoritarianism. Putin is the leader of Russia for 22 years in some form or another, either as the supreme leader um, or there was a small stint. He was the prime minister and he figured out how to make that stop so he could just be the supreme leader. 22 years. Think about that. And all throughout that time, because of his authoritarian um, nature and the authoritarian mindset he has, um, what that results in is, again, authoritarians don't look forward into a trying to understand what the future could look like and how to innovate and and disrupt to be part of that future authoritarians are more likely to look in the past to look in the past when they felt like their lives were really great and um, their country was really great right and so for putin that past was um for initially some of the years of the soviet union when the soviet union was considered a, a world superpower but also he started to do his own kind of historical research, and countries have done this throughout their, you know, throughout history, they, they, they look back historically to, to find kind of these legendary times uh, when their their nation or their country was, was you know, kind of glorified um, and maybe even create a new uh, origin myth uh, about their country, which is very much what um, uh, Putin did. And so, um, that resulted in you know a contraction uh, in R- Russia's economy because um, the way that that uh, Putin knew he could stay in power was to not necessarily reform the Constitution or reform their economic model, but to placate the Russian oligarch families and the Russian Orthodox Church. Russia is literally a state-sanctioned uh, theocracy. So it is it is sanctioned its religion as the Ru- as as the Russian Orthodox Church, a, a the Christian Orthodox Church. Now this is interesting because it's why you will see this very strange cognitive dissonance with conservatives in the United States who seem to really like Putin and and Russia, and it's it's because um, conservatives in the United States. Um, like to also look back sometimes in history, or, or and 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 believe that it, you know religion is key to the success of, of a nation, which it, it, there, historically it, that is not true. Um, and yet, that's kind of a motif, and and also somewhat myth origin myth um, about nation building, right? And so, um, so so that's that's appealing to the to conservative kind of. Uh, the conservative movement in the United States, if you kind of are wondering why that's happening, you'll notice that about um, about, you know, what Putin has done in Russia with the with the Russian Orthodox Church, which includes also um, Putin saying gay people don't exist in Russia. That really makes conservatives excited in the United States. So that's why you see some of that cognitive dissonance um, happening. Why? Why do conservatives who were, you know, in the Republican Party under Reagan were very hard on Russia and and, and anti Russia, really? And now those same conservatives are um, in love with Putin, and and that's why there's there's some common thread. So I want to talk about the demographic shift that we're also seeing. Um, the baby boomers dominated population growth globally. Um, in all first world and second world countries, per, uh, post-World War II, from China to Russia, to the United States. Um, now, in you know, Putin's uh, authoritarian regime and desire to make Russia great again, uh, based on his outdated ideas or looking to the past um, and maintain control through a single state religion, um, and and also to uh, not invest in public education ha- has caused a, a few problems with with Russia's population. So I'll start there. So um, baby boomers today, and one of the reasons that we're we're seeing, or i'm or I'm hypothesizing or my thesis about a new world order, um, can it, it is due to the fact that the baby boomer population who have maintained the old world order, have maintained the cold war cold war order for so long and the policies around the cold war um post-world war ii order of things they are dying out the the baby boomer population over the next 20 20 years or less will be will not exist anymore so that leaves these countries to rely on the generations under them the gen x the generation x kids it, that's a small small population um that that is not going to be significant enough to uh create a new world order so you know who's going to be left <laughs> to really create the new world order ironically are millennials and and it's interesting because millennials are the generations that have been vil- is the generation that has been vilified um and demonized by the baby boomers that they are too woke uh, that's you know that the Millennials um, are so too socially liberal Millennials don't necessarily look back um, so even even people who are like uh, conservatives that are Millennials will not like do not like to consider themselves Millennials because that of that motif that kind of fits with the the, the millennial generation but but Russia's Millennials um, and millennials are so so here here's some things to, to know about millennials. They are uh, much more socially open. They, so they are you know, very supportive of um, human rights across the spectrum, right? And it really intolerant of, um, of uh, closing off rights of, of marginalized groups. So that's one trait that millennials have that has, has really graded against baby boomer generations and graded against religions. Uh, across across the world. Now, um, you know, religions and countries can continue to look to the past and and try to make things the way that they used to be because that's what they think God wanted or that that, that was better in, in the previous generation. Uh, in fact, I even had a baby boomer tell me uh, recently that uh, in, in a meeting that I need to listen to my elders because they know better than I do. And I'm just gonna tell you baby boomers that that's never going to work with millennials because millennials will basically um, uh, not listen to you and they will reject what you're saying even more. And they are our future. And millennials are much more uh, progressive scientifically. Millennials understand the age of the internet and, and the data economy. They um, they have tremendously they're tremendously more educated. And, um, you know, I I put a little rocket there because millennials are going to take us to space Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But because of this state controlled uh, authoritarianism and and very conservative Christian religion, um, Russia, Russia's really experienced a brain drain uh, of their millennial population. So their millennial population is almost doesn't really exist. So as baby boomers die out in Russia, there will not be a Russia like we know it. Uh, it will leave Russia in, um, in, in, in full and com- complete collapse. And um, amongst other things that I'll talk about in a minute, China is in a similar situation. Again, debunking your, your, the myth or your bias that China is a big threat. It's just not. Uh, we are also going to see the end of China very soon um because china's baby boomer population is enormous and they're moving into retirement which the state is now going to have to fund um and when the state's funding uh your retirement population and there's not a base of workers that are cons- consuming but beno- continuing to consume and contribute um it, it just it's it's ripe for for collapse and then that when that generation is gone dead, Uh, there is not a significant millennial population in China because of their population growth policies that um, really stymied or almost eliminated um, their millennial generation. The largest millennial generation, the largest millennial population exists, you guessed it, in the United States and Mexico. So we're going to talk about those two countries here in a minute, but because of that, um, the United States and Mexico will be in a very different position um, in the new, in the in the post-pandemic, post-recession, uh, post-Ukrainian war um, eco- geopolitical world. So millennials are our future, um, and just to recap, the decline of globalism, and I'm I'm not you know I, ha- I have a hard time saying decline of globalism because in my heart i i i'm a globalist only because i i, I for socially i i want to make sure that we are i not getting too nationalistic or tribalistic because that for me just my bias is that creates conflict that's unnecessary in the 21st century um so when i think of globalism i think of you know um of a, on more of a social right uh, landscape in terms of human rights, um, tolerance, and and really lifting people across the world out of poverty, but globalism in this sense and geopolitically is I, when I say that for this podcast I'm referencing the post um, the post World War II Cold War era economic model. The first world countries, the second world countries, these two superpowers, the first and second world superpowers that um, really ran the geopolitical climate and globalism um, right up until uh, we got into the 21st century. So, what what's accelerating really the end of that order of the old world order of globalism? What started with the 2008 recession, really, because the 2008 recession highlighted the fact that this economic order, uh, this world order that had been established post-World War II with the United States uh, kind of managing the the, uh, security of economic uh, systems um, through its military across the globe. Um, so, So despite the fact that there was this very powerful economic order that was protected and secured through the United States' massive military that everyone agreed to build, including countries that, that paid for that, you know, paid us to build um, or or to deploy our military to, to secure their economic interests. Um, the 2008 recession, the banking crisis, um, demonstrated that because of globalism and, and this global economy, when there is a crisis, especially in the, in the United States, it, it hits the entire world. And our military could do nothing Obviously, nothing about that. It wasn't we 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 did plenty through the Cold War era to use our military might to secure economic um, pathways um, and economic systems globally, but that but our military is not going to save us um, or or save that economic world model through recessions, through bad economic policy, which is really what caused the two thousand and eight recession. Um, and uh, or the military is not going to save us from the pandemic. And so um, so 2008 recession highlighted this for specifically the United States. I think the United States recognized that there needed to be a change um, that um, in order to um, manage and prepare for global uh, catastrophes that no longer relate to global war because we really kind of eliminated global war from World War II era due to this massive military that is managed by, by one country geopolitically. There, there really isn't a, a, a world war threat anymore. The United States recognizes this in 2008 and recognizes there are other global factors that are a bigger threat. Um, global uh, catastrophes, either climate change or pandemics, or global recessions due to bad economic policy. Um, so the United States began, uh, I, my in my thesis, reindustrializing through the through two thousand and eight and and beyond, and 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 bringing production back into the United States um, from other countries, uh, and and not 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 to a huge extent. That there was there was still some you know global tendencies to do that. But it became more and more important for the United States to to rebuild um, things like um, their closest neighbors, Canada and Mexico, and the economic uh, pathways and systems between those those neighboring countries. So um, that's the 2008 recession really kind of started that process of of the declination of the old world order of globalization. And I I believe the pandemic, um, the pandemic basically. Sealed that. I think that the 2008 recession might have caused a slow decline in the old world order of things, but the pandemic, I I believe, um, basically accelerated the accelerated us to the end of the old world order. The old world order of globalization is is over, um, and the Ukrainian Russian conflict, I think, just really highlights that it is over, that that it has ended because all of the mythology that we have built through the Cold War era about Russia's military and might and China's economic might have like the truth is out, that there is no such thing. There is uh, no uh, orthodoxy. Uh, It's made up. So so Russia is, It is not a military might. It is not a superpower. Its GDP is smaller than Texas, than the state of Texas um, in the United States. Uh, It it does not have a a strong millennial workforce to take over for the baby boomers that they've had significant brain drain. So they have no way to to really build a consumer driven economy. Um, And who's how are they going? What one way that countries that have a demographic problem can can build a consumer um, uh, centric economy, consumerism is to um, entice people to come from other countries, entice immigrants that they want to move to their country. But that's no no one's enticed to move to to Russia because you have to be in in authoritarianism does not uh, invite immigration, uh, right? And so there is no future for Russia. So what the Ukrainian and Russia conflict is showing is Putin as an authoritarian looking back into the past to to, in his mind, the way he's going to build the future of the world is looking into the past, not understanding the future economic um, challenges in front of us or geopolitical challenges, not recognizing what the 2008 recession really meant, as well as the pandemic. Um, it, it, it did, and I think to some degree Putin did understand what it would mean, and that's probably why he starts to think about how do I how do I build Russia up again um, and reindustrialize Russia. Well, one of the ways he thinks he should should do that is through bringing Ukraine, Belarus back into Russia, not because he wants to create the old Soviet Union, but because he wants to uh, bring these economic engines back into Russia that that really. Really was the 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 downfall of of Russia when Ukraine left, and so but but again, Putin's vision of reindustrialization is is not like the United States' vision, um, in that uh, the United States is reindustrializing with with um, forethought about what the future is going to look like with with science and technology. And, and that is not what Putin is doing. Putin is looking into the past to reindustrialize. So there's no future in that. There's no future in a um, a religious uh, state um, uh, governance model that um, that enforces certain dogma and and social constraints. That that, that is not uh, a reindustrial an reindustrialization model. It's it's a very uh, rate limiting model, um, leaving uh, your your authoritarianism in the hands of a of a small group of of powerful people, billionaires, oligarchs that and there is not a way to check and balance those, um, you know, those families or those groups. It just there's no future for Russia. And so despite what might happen in Ukraine, we we, we may see. Part of Ukraine become part of Russia, or Russia tries to control Ukraine, or there's just a a decade long uh, conflict where Ukraine is constantly, you know, trying to um, overthrow R- Russian tyranny. Um, uh, and and one of the things that Russia has done in the past with Ukraine and and countries around them is they've installed pro Putin, pro authoritarian um leaders um they they did that in ukraine they attempted to do it in um in france not that they want to control france but they don't want france to continue to to push uh western um you know western europe ideologies in in their direction um and that this is what we saw in 2015 and 16 with macron and um the woman who was running against him she i forget her name but she was really backed by Putin. It's the same thing we saw in the United States with with Donald Trump and and the fact that Donald Trump and his authoritarianism. And I I don't know that Putin really thought to himself, well, Trump's an authoritarian, so I really want him in power. I know what Putin was more likely thinking is he's not from the establishment. He, He he he's not going to care about NATO like Hillary Clinton did or or Mitt Romney, or um, or Barack Obama. If you remember when Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were debating, um, Mitt Romney recognized the the problems happening in Russia and how you know you know Putin is is building the this uh, these uh, th- through not war but through propaganda and misinformation in political campaigns to to install pro-Putin and pro-authoritarian leaders in these countries. And it would be a huge prize for Putin to do that to the United States. Um, And so Putin, and and really during that time, during the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, and Hillary Clinton used the State Department to really pressure Russia, sanction Russia, and keep Russia from expanding, to stop Russia from... You know, participating in other in other countries' elections through propaganda and, and coercion and corruption, and so when Zelensky was was elected, um, that really by major popular vote, that was a real blow to Putin because um, his installed uh, you know authoritarian lookalike, you know was um, was defeated, and and so so anyway. So if somebody might say, "I just hear, heard a question. So, well, then, why use military force?" Um, you know, I I, I can't really I, I can't really answer that question. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I think part of it, if I if I were to 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 get to suggest an idea, is that Putin learned that a military force, in a very limited way, works. He, he did it in Crimea, and we didn't really get involved. Um, and so what, what he what he does is he uses the military if, if he can't use propaganda and corruption in the in a country's election to to elect a pro-Putin or passive Putin leader, then his then he has to his last ditch effort is to use military force to install a Putin-friendly leader. And that that's that's what I think happened with Ukraine, uh, you, you, the propaganda um, was not working. And I'll explain to you you know why propag- this propaganda technique that worked for so long is now crumbling for all of these countries and, and political parties. Um, so the propaganda and, and I'll just I'll give you a little glimpse. It's because of space. And because of our satellite systems um, that are proliferating throughout um, throughout low Earth orbit. orbit. So, so space has really played a huge role in the Ukrainian conflict. It gave us information about Russia much earlier and the world could highlight because of our information um, that, that the Biden administration and the United States use that information to tell the world that Russia is going to invade, even though Russia's propaganda State propaganda was no, we're never going to invade. I don't know what we're talking about. What, what they're talking about, we're just doing military training on the borders, right? And the propaganda machine that worked in the past in the in 2010 2014 um, gave Putin a lot of leeway in overturning uh, elections and installing Putin-friendly regimes and leaders. And um, when the Ukrainians, um, because of uh, satellite technology, things like Starlink and other, other technologies, um, information becomes much more freely available. And the Ukrainian people have much better access under Zelensky's policies to information and to the Internet, unlike Russia. And um, that that really resulted in Ukraine. First of all, the United States revealing Russia's intentions early and then also um, um, the uh, um, Ukrainians re- really resisting the the attack and and uh, not not succumbing to um, you know these kind of election problems. Um, they they voted in a guy that was really popular. He one of the reasons he got elected is using technology and the internet to to overcome Russian propaganda. Macron was really good at that um, in terms of using the internet to overcome Russian propaganda that was intended to um, get, keep him from getting elected uh, because he's not pro, pro-Russian. pro um, The Democrats didn't do that very well with Hillary Clinton um, because we are just too far away to understand Russia's Role and the fact that Russia is, um, you know, very involved in in propaganda to um, to ensure that through election cycles, pro-Russian, pro-Putin, pro-authoritarian leaders get elected. So um, space has played a massive role uh, in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, and the conflict has highlighted the the fact that uh, the military might of Russia is not not what we thought it was. Um, the economic engine is not what we thought it was. Um, we also, um, I think that Putin thought that NATO had been sufficiently weakened, especially through the Trump administration. I had made a a video when Trump was first elected many years ago. So I don't know if it's still on my channel where I really talked about my fears about the Trump administration, specifically kind of going after and destabilizing NATO. Because um, it wasn't just that we were saying, well, you got to pay your fair share and people have kind of fallen for that propaganda, like France, Germany need to pay their fair share. What really they, they what he wanted and and people around him and isn't in, in his orbit wanted to um, basically dismantle you NATO know, and no longer participate. In fact, it was in 2016 when when. President Trump became the Republican nominee. That means he becomes the leader of the Republican Party. The Republican Party rewrote or, or wrote into its, its platform, its political platform, to, to no longer support Ukraine, for example, which is a pro-Russian, pro-Putin uh, idea and ideology. And, and it's, been, it's still in the Republican platform today, still in the GOP platform. Um, and so um, that's the kind of thing that we see happening, but that that mechanism worked for baby boomers, the propaganda machine, and trying to use that machine to, to influence and overturn elections. It's not gonna work for millennials, Gen Zs, and, and the new alpha generations, uh, and what I'm gonna call the Artemis generation. So, um, so I think the Ukrainian conflict in some ways is just kind of showing Baby boomers wanting to to keep a world order that that uh, from a time past that that uh, doesn't work anymore, and um, because and that, that's what Russia's failure in Ukraine is really highlighted, and so we'll move on from from um, oh and one other thing I want to say about like the demise of Russia so so because of the Biden administration's way of of. About providing information much earlier to the world that this was going, this this Russian invasion was going to happen the fact that Ukraine is such a large country and, and it is right on the edge of western Europe those western Europe alliances NATO did pull together um, and you can criticize the Biden administration um, and I, I have my own criticisms of the Biden administration but this is one thing that that administration I don't pin that just on Biden. It's it's the State Department and the fact that we have a functioning State Department, which we didn't under the Trump administration. Um, really worked with our allies to bring NATO together and reassure Germany that um, sanctioning, fully sanctioning um, Russia, because sanctioning Russia would mean Russia would also retaliate and stop oil, natural gas shipments to Germany, and Germany relies heavily on oil production and, and gas from Russia. And so what the Biden administration did is, is say to Germany, we will, we will supply you natural gas. We have to ship it over the, over the water. It's not as efficient, but, um, and, and Germany could have said, no, we're, we we, that's, that's going to be too expensive take too long. But Germany actually came through and, and NATO came through and said, yeah, we're going to sanction Russia big time sanction the hell out of Russia. And so um, that left um, Russia in even worse condition. Russia will not recover from this war. No matter what happens, there is no winning the Ukraine-Russian war. There is no winner. There really won't even be a winner for Ukraine. Ukraine is being devastated and, and, and cities are being destroyed. So there is no winner. There will not be a Ukraine winner or a Russian winner Winner. There is no winner. This is just, I believe, a symptom of the of the um total collapse of an old world order. Um, the dying off of baby boomers, and 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 we're gonna see pockets of disruption like this. I think baby boomers, and I'm I'm probably demonizing them, and I don't mean to do that, but you know, this generation kind of authoritarianism trying to hold on to power and hold on to the past that just doesn't exist. It's gonna cause some disruption, but ultimately um, it will. will result in the end of these of these authoritarian countries the end of russia and the end of china there is no there is no china invading taiwan china if if that happened china knows exactly what the united states would do the united states has two aircraft carriers um, right in the middle of the southeast asian waters Um, and so any military attempt um Even if we don't use our military to stop them from from doing something with Taiwan, the sanctions that we can impose um, on on China are so severe because there's only, especially if we have really like if there's no more Russia, there is no other country for China to to rely on or lean on in a powerful way, um, except maybe India. But still, the United States controls those waters militarily. China, if even if China does attempt to do something with Taiwan, that will be more of just a symptom again of this collapse of the old world order and not a trend going forward. and it won't it won't really mean anything. No one will win. So here's the old Atlantic order. And I want to just kind of use this for a visual to kind of help people understand um, what I mean by these world orders. The old Atlantic Order, which was um really what happened post-world War. Two, it's where we got the nomenclature of a first world country, second world country, third world country. The new Atlantic order resulted in these allies, um, which is all the countries in green that you see uh, along the Atlantic Ocean. That's why I call it the Atlantic world order. Um, And we focused so much of uh, the world order on the Atlantic. Uh, Whenever you see pictures of the globe, you'll see the Atlantic and the countries along the Atlantic. Um, and, and so much of that is just kind of post World War thinking. Uh, world War II. the United States, NATO, Western Europe, um, uh, and, and you know Israel, Japan, um, Australia, but really those um, those Atlantic countries uh, became uh, the first world. Um, Soviet Union, China, and, and what you see in yellow, the second the second uh, uh, the second world countries, and then anything any of the countries in red remained neutral. Um, And this was something that really maintained the Cold War for a very long time. And um, I'm saying to you today that this old Atlantic world order that generations of people, mostly baby boomers, have relied on and understood um, as their worldview um, is no longer. This doesn't exist. This old Atlantic world order. Um, and think about our politicians. How many of our politicians are in their seventies and, and have their minds stuck in this in this world old world Atlantic order? Our parents, um, and and those millennials and and Gen Xers and and Gen Z and alphas, um, you'll you'll recognize that this doesn't exist anymore. So I think some of your cognitive dissonance when you're listening to your parents or you're watching any kind of news outlets, especially Fox News, the cognitive dissonance is there because this Atlantic world order really doesn't exist anymore. But there's a whole bunch of old people that think it does. Um, So I just want to also mention what Putin's trying to do in maintaining um, an old world order. I think maybe Putin understands that deglobalization is occurring, but his desire is to maintain a new or to create a new European order um, where Great Britain and the United States, it, you know, they remain first world order, if, if you will. Um, but uh, Russia with Ukraine, Crimea, Belarus uh, under its control in alliance with the Austrian-Hungary um, countries really creates this new European alliance. This is what Putin's trying to create. So you can see I have the Russian Federation there with Putin the Austrian-Hungary uh, idea under um, Viktor Orban's leadership um, as kind of this alliance and then the United States and Western Europe. I don't think that necessarily Putin wants to um, create a military conflict between these two uh, allies. This is just his view of how the future should look. People have asked me, well, so if Putin's trying to reach in the past to uh, you know, create his new future, Um, What does what's his idea of the future look like? And it's it's this uh, the Putin Orban new new European order. Viktor Orban is a total authoritarian. Um, It's totally linked to oddly enough, and I go back to the GOP and how this conservative movement of the United States and the Republican Party has really aligned itself well with uh, authoritarian regimes. It's a and, and one of the reasons I say that is because uh, the Republican I think the CPAC a Republican um, political group is is having their annual meeting in uh, in Hungary uh, with Vic, with Victor Orbán as like a guest speaker Victor Orbán which is which is again I think I, it's hard for it's cause of cognitive dissonance for me too but I I wonder if that's you know a certain group of baby boomers in the United States. Who see Viktor Orban and and Putin as aligning with their their old values that really aren't irrelevant are, that are irrelevant in the twenty first century, so this is what the Putin Orban Orban uh, new European order looks like. This is the thing that Russia that Putin dreams about. I'm telling you, this is not going to happen. I just want you to know what's in Putin's what what I think is in Putin's head. Who who am I? What what do I know? Um, so, I want to present um, the New World Order, uh, my my thesis, my hypothesis about what a post uh, pandemic, post 2008 recession, um, 21st century um, New World Order looks like. I'm calling it the Pacific Green World Order because it, and, and taking the focus off the Atlantic Ocean and on the Pacific, where the United States continues to lead. Uh, with a massive millennial generation that is highly educated uh, in the technical world and in uh, science, um, healthcare, and medicine. Um, And so this new world order will be led by the United States. The United States also um, has uh, the ability to sustain itself with all of its own natural resources. Unlike any other country, Russia can't do that. China can't do that. Um, so, and we also can, we can provide our own energy. So the, so the United States, for example, the president, one of, one of the things that our president can do is, uh, ban exports of energy, um, uh, fuels like natural gas and oil to other countries. I think that's going to happen really soon. Uh, because what that will do is stabilize our gas prices. We won't have to, uh, see, there, right now, just the reason. Just to give you a little background. Uh, there's a massive um, problem with supply chain of, of of oil and natural gas because of the Ukrainian-Russian war and the sanctions that are happening. Um, and so, other countries that need our uh, energy-producing fuels, China and other countries um, uh, throughout the world, um, are are really desperate for that for that energy producing um, fossil fuels, natural gas, oil. Um, and so what will even hurt them worse is when the United States, in order to maintain and stabilize its own gas prices, um, and some of that will be done politically, um, you know, as we go through political election cycles. But I, I predict that, there, that the United States is going to, to stop exports of its own fuel um and keep all of its um, natural resources home get natural gas and and uh and oil whether some of you will like that some of you won't like that because you're worried about other countries i'm just telling you that's probably what's going to happen which will lower and stabilize our gas prices in the united states but become make that even more painful for um, the rest of the world especially developing countries so the united states because of its millennial generation, because of its reindustrialization efforts that began um, back in 2008 and, um, and its investment in space and its investment in technology, and intellectual property, will be this new leader of the Ring of Fire world order. Mexico and Canada will also be flanked um, as the two most important allies to the United States going forward. Um, Due to the natural resources for energy production that Canada holds um, and also the population of millennials that Mexico has. And if you've been to Mexico recently um, and talked to Mexicans that actually live there and have grown up there, they will talk about how despite corruption that we know continues to exist in Mexico, the Mexican government is investing um, in education. And so not only is their millennial workforce in in Mexico, similar to the United States, um, they are also becoming more educated. Now, not as educated as the United States, but our um, so so I I predict. And the reason I have those three countries that are flanked together is um, the United States will rely very much on these neighbors due to the fact that we're just on the same continent. And what Canada will bring is natural resources, and Mexico will bring the labor, um, labor resources um, in connection with what the United States already has. Uh, Japan, Singapore, and Australia will be part of this new world order, this new alliance economically across the Pacific. And um, that's why you'll see um, space programs where Japan is investing right along with the United States, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So I made a new flag for the new world order called the Ring of Fire. You see I put little flames around the six countries that will make up our new world order with the United States star in the middle, um, flanked on either side of the United States, Mexico and Canada, with Japan and Singapore, these, and Australia, the oceanic countries um, surrounding the United States. So some people have asked me, well, what what happens with Western Europe? Well, the way that I kind of think about Western Europe in this new model is no longer will the focus be on the Atlantic powers. Um, The Western Europe powers will just be considered part of the United States power. Um, Western Europe um, is going to be heavily dependent upon the, the new uh, this this uh, ring of fire world order um, because of the natural resources that we will bring to them and security that we'll bring to them. They'll be important allies for us to con- continuously, for sure. I actually predict that most the most the, the country that will rise up and lead Western Europe will be France. I think a lot of people have thought that was Germany. That's a whole other podcast that I can talk about. Why I think France will emerge as that leader for Western Europe, but Western Europe. I, that's why I place Western Europe kind of under the United States in the arena fire world order. Um, so, in this new world order that I hypothesize, there is a um, there is a primary world and a middle world, and I say that because I. Um, don't uh, the the old nomenclature of a first world country second world country third world countries over there are now going to be primary world countries um that are in that group of six countries or there will be middle world countries and i i'm this is a pretty stark difference from what we have been used to that i think people are going to get have a difficult time getting their minds around because what it really means is that our primary world um our primary world order um will be limited to just a few countries whereas the rest of the world there won't be second and third world countries they'll all be middle world countries and with with some regional powers so russia china really almost will no longer exist unless they find ways to ally um with uh, regional powers or with the primary world order so south america all of the middle east africa india um and what this what what will really signify the future um for uh the, the uh, primary world order and what will what will differentiate the primary world order is the centrality of space because the only countries that will have access to the economics of space will be primary world countries. Japan, the United States, Canada, Mexico, Singapore, and Australia. Um, all other countries, all middle world countries will have to act. Will access space if they can through the primary world order. And space is the only thing that will really matter economically going forward. Uh, the centrality of space is, the signature uh, kind of uh, uh, component of our new world order, uh, the Pacific uh, Ring or the Ring of Fire, new world order going forward, because what space will afford us is a new reindustrialization or an, uh, uh, of this new economic order. Um, because in order to truly reindustrialize uh, the Ring of Fire. And the countries that that belong to this new economic order, space and the centrality of space will be uh, it will be front and center, if you will, um, for the the new world, new economic order. We've seen the evidence for this be due to the infrastructure of space. We already have satellites, and the information that flows um, will become more and more important, and has shown to be the the primary way that we will eliminate these propaganda machines from authoritarian regimes even within our own country so um, that is that is centered on space and space technology um, we will also see uh through the artemis mission which is really led by the united states and its new ring of fire allies i.e japan australia um, the artemis missions really are intended to build an entire infrastructure from the Earth to the Moon. Now, I want to explain what that means really quickly, because it's more than just satellites. It's space stations that allow us to launch material into space that can either dock on space stations in near Earth orbit or on a space station orbiting the Moon, um, and bring materials to that can be used to build other space stations, private space stations around the Earth, um, space stations around the moon, and the reason that's important be- is because the the primary uh, I- inhibitor to to building an infrastructure in space, for manufacturing in space, and industrial industrializing space, is um, uh, the gravity. <laughs> so lifting material off the Earth is the rate limiting factor, the cost, and how difficult that is. So if we can spend the next two to five years launching rockets, and by the way, the reason we can do this, ra- launch rockets weekly with material loads to build this infrastructure is because of um, the, the, the work that we've done with re- reusable uh, rockets with SpaceX. So that reusable rocket technology um, ha- is really the accelerator um, to make space central to this new world order. Um, And so over the next uh, five to 10 years, uh, maybe 20, uh, an entire space infrastructure will exist, which will allow us then to build a moon base um, for the eventual purpose of manufacturing materials from the moon. And and once we can do that, and and that includes extracting water from water ice on the South Pole, it includes um, accessing rare earth elements that are found in the the crust um, and um, using regolith uh, to actually make cement. we, We will literally begin manufacturing in space, which will alleviate the need to lift materials from the earth to build the infrastructure of space. We will build the infrastructure of space from space materials, from the moon particularly, and the asteroids. So the uh, the reality is the, the new future of our new economic world, the new world order um, led by the Ring of Fire countries, it, it is going to mean that there will be an entire uh, inner solar system um, technological uh, advancement scientifically, but also from resources, we will we will have access. The the generation Alpha, some of my kids, I believe, will have access to 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 important natural resources from the atmosphere of Venus, maybe even from Mercury, um, certainly from Mars, and definitely from the Moon and the asteroid belt. So everything from the asteroid belt right into the Sun, that entire inner solar system, is going to be what our future is centered upon. It is the new future of our economic world order. It, it will only be accessible fully and built out through the new ring of fire, um, new world order, the ring of fire uh, superpower. So that, that's the end of the, the presentation. It's kind of the end of this, 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 uh, this uh, dialogue. Um, I'll continue to come back and talk about the Ring of Fire uh, New World Order, the Ring of Fire superpower. Um, And I I don't even think you could call it these things. I I don't even think we can use those nomenclatures anymore like superpowers because there is no longer any other superpowers economically and militarily that only is held by the United States. And it doesn't really matter anymore. It's still wonderful, not wonderful, but it'll still maintain security across the world that the United States military will continue to invest in the military, even more so to protect the Pacific Ocean um, for our economic lanes. But the other thing that we will be doing as a country is building out an entirely new um, security apparatus in space. So just like during the Cold War, we built as United States an entire military that could be deployed in any uh, ocean or any air space across the globe immediately we're the only military in the world that has that capability we have these big aircraft carriers that are deployed in every ocean we will now do the same thing in space so now think about space Uh, the 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 ocean is to the post-world war ii new world or post-world war ii order as space will be to the new pacific ring world order we will build an entire infrastructure of security a security apparatus Space Force um, led by the United States that will protect all of our assets in space, manufacturing in space, so that we don't have disruption from the middle countries that might have authoritarian regimes that might want to have access to these resources. So um, if you want to try to think, if you're a baby boomer and you're having a hard time getting your mind around this, rather think about what we did as a country to build out um, our water, our naval resources, our naval security, air superiority now just think about that as space outer space from the near earth orbit out to the moon all the way to mars and um, throughout the entire inner solar system and that is the future i predict um, and so i hope you enjoyed our topics uh tonight and i'm going to just tell you thank you for taking time and i'm also going to say peace out buttercups